Now today we have a very special program with two award-winning and best-selling novelists. Our moderator here this afternoon is Liz Moore. She is the award-winning author of three books, including Heft, The Words of Every Song, and The Unseen World. Moore's short fiction and creative nonfiction have appeared in venues such as Tin House, The New York Times, and Narrative Magazine. She lives with her family in Philadelphia and is a faculty member of the MFA program in creative writing at Temple University. Now I do have to make a special plug here. Liz Moore is coming out with a new book in January 2020 that we are particularly excited about. It's called Long Bright River. This is an advanced copy. Unfortunately, I cannot sell it or I'll get in trouble with Liz's <laughs> publisher. Um, it's one of the most anticipated novels of 2020. It's set in Philadelphia, so it's got a Pennsylvania feel. Um, and it's already received rave reviews from Dennis Lehane and Paula Hawkins. Uh, I have also read it and can confirm. It's pretty fantastic. Uh, she is coming to the Scholar in January 2020. It's going to be January 17th. It's a Friday. Uh, so make sure to mark your calendars to come back and support Liz. Taya Obrecht's debut novel, The Tiger's Wife, won the 2011 Orange Prize for Fiction and was an international bestseller. Her work has appeared in the Boston American Short Stories, The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Harper's Magazine, and Zotrope All Story, among many others. Originally from the former Yugoslavia, she now lives in New York with her husband and teaches at Hunter College. Her new novel, which we are here for this afternoon, is titled Inland. Some of my favorite blurbs that have come out for Inland are uh, from Entertainment Weekly. What Obrecht pulls off here is pure poetry. And NPR says, Inland is a classic story told in a classic way, and yet it feels wholly and unmistakably new. At once a new Western myth and a far realer story than many we have previously received. Without further ado, please join me in giving a warm Harrisburg welcome to Taya and Liz. Thank you so much for that lovely introduction. It's such a pleasure to be here at the Harris Book Festival and uh, here at Midtown Scholar for the first time. Um, thank you all for coming out this, uh, this, on this rainy, rainy day. Um, and thank you so much, Liz, for, for coming out and doing this. Uh, Liz is one of my favorite living authors, um, and to get to do this with her is a really special privilege. Um, I'm going to talk about Inland very briefly, um, and then get into conversation with Liz and, and do a Q&A with, with you folks. Um, so uh, my, my first book came out eight years ago, um, a little over eight years ago. Uh, and if you had asked me then whether my second book was going to be a Western, uh, I would have been very surprised by the question and would have said decidedly no. Um, I was born, uh, uh, as you heard uh, in the introduction, in the former Yugoslavia, and I, I grew up on the move. I grew up in Cyprus and in Egypt. Um, and so the idea of home for me was always more tethered to household and people rather than place. Um, and when I started spending time in the American West, in the American Mountain and Southwest for the first time, that radically, radically changed. Um, in particular, I spent time in Wyoming and, and Arizona um, and really, really felt a deep sense of connection to the place. Um, felt homesick for it when I left, which was also surprising. Um, and I knew that, that whatever book I wrote next would have to uh, explore that feeling. I had already written a book in, in the interim, which I had put away and was feeling pretty panicked about the years going by. Um, and so I, I started to dabble sort of in, in Western myth and lore with which I was already familiar, uh, even having grown up in the Balkans, because it's a pretty pervasive, pretty far-reaching myth. Um, and wrote a novel. Uh, that didn't work. Wrote a, a Western novel. That didn't work either. 
um, and was really starting to get panicked, clocking in at around 1,400 pages of stuff that was just going in drawers, really overstuffed drawers. Um, and uh, then stumbled on this incredible story uh, that became the backbone of Inland um, through a podcast that I really, really adore called Stuff You Missed in History Class. Is anyone a fan? No? If, uh, if you listen to podcasts and you don't listen to this one, you should listen to this one because it ties these really obscure moments uh, of history to larger uh, big picture episodes. Uh, and it's just fantastic. Um, and this particular one told the story of a, uh, an Arizona campfire yarn from the late 19th century about something called the Red Ghost. Uh, which was presented in the narrative as a large, shaggy red quadruped, uh, which confronts these two homesteading women on their ranch one night while the men are away. And they have a very violent encounter with it, and then it runs off into the bushes and continues sort of haunting uh, local homesteads for, uh, for, the, for several more years. And the podcast went on to tie this true yarn to the even truer story of the United States Camel Corps. Has anyone heard about that? Yeah, uh, <laughs> um, I hadn't heard about it until I started doing research for this book. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, the US military brought camels over from the Ottoman Empire uh, in 1856 to serve as pack animals in the American Southwest. They came over with young men, uh, also from the Ottoman Empire, uh, who were their drovers back home, uh, and who with them staked what is now Route 66. <laughs> See, yeah, I also had that reaction. Um, and I, I couldn't believe that this was a story that, that, that was true, um, and that, um, you know, I mean, uh, say that truth is stranger than fiction all you want, but, but uh, what I was deeply interested then, uh, in, deeply interested in then was um, how myths live and die, and what aspects of mythology make their way into the greater mythos and what gets left out. Um, and uh, I started doing research on the camels and on these homesteading women uh, uh, who had first encountered the, uh, the red ghost. And uh, they moved into my head and into my house, and uh, four years later I ended up with this book. Um, and that's, that's how that came to be. Um, I don't know if I have time now to read for just like one second. Okay. Um, so the, the book follows two narrative strands. Um, one follows Lurie. He's a, he's a young man uh, uh, when he's telling the story, but he's brought over from the Balkans as a child by his father from the Ottoman Empire. Um, and uh, he, he's orphaned in New York, and he ends up on an orphan train to Missouri, and there he falls in with a bad crowd and ends up with a marshal on his tail. Uh, basically for the rest of his life, and he ends up seeking shelter uh, from the law in an unlikely place <laughs> with an unlikely group of people making their way across the West. It's the Camel Corps. Um, <laughs> uh, the other narrative strand follows uh, Nora. She's a homesteading woman in, in the 1890s in Amargo in Arizona Territory. Um, and she's been having a really, really rough year. There's a terrible drought going on. Uh, the town in which she lives has been challenged for the county seat by the neighboring town. Uh, her husband, a newspaper man, has gone off in search of water, and he's late coming back. Um, and I'm just going to read you very, very briefly from the beginning of her section. Uh, so this is 1893 in Arizona Territory in a town called Amargo. 
Toby came running back, empty-handed, to tell her he'd found more tracks, down by the creek this time. All right, Nora said, show me. She reined up and followed her youngest into the gulch. The trail narrowed between high bluffs and led out among the black imbrications of an ancient riverbed before winding for a quarter mile through cottonwoods and down to the shore. Little remained of the stream now, save for glossy September mud and the wakes of what few salamanders had managed to evade Toby. He pointed to where his bucket had dropped. Them's the tracks. Those are, Nora said. It relieved her to see his hair growing back. Through three sons and 17 years of motherhood, shaving had borne out as the only successful campaign against lice, but its effects were decidedly punitive. Toby looked like a deserter from some urchin militia sentenced to bear the badge of his dishonor. What if this time history should fail him, leaving him bald forever? <laughs> he made a sorry little man as it was, too thin for seven, soft and golden and clued up with doubt, prone to his father's wilding turn of mind. This business with the tracks had rooted deep, displacing all his other worries and earning him the derision of his brothers, Rob and Dolan, who wouldn't brook a child's ghost story now that they were so adamantly men. The only solution they were charitable enough to entertain, say the word and we'll bait it, Tobe, ran thoroughly against his inclinations, for Toby had no great wish to see the beast, merely to be believed in the matter of its existence. Last week, the boys had taken him out to the abandoned Flores claim, site of the track's initial manifestation, to cure him of his nonsense. By what means, Nora could not guess, though she had managed to refrain from warning them to mind his bad eye. They were her boys, Emmett's sons. Recent outbursts aside, they were upright and vigilant, careful with others in general and with Toby in particular. Still, she had waited on the porch until they reappeared in the red boil of twilight, two horses dragging long shadows. Dolan bobbing stoutly along, Rob a few yards ahead and so starved looking at 16 that she wondered how he was managing to keep Toby upright in the saddle before him with just one arm. Well, she called, did you bare your teeth to whatever's out there? Rob lifted him down. We're nothing out there but some grouse and an empty old turtle shell and we're all agreed that none of them's fixing to haunt Toby ever again. A tiny smile dragged the corner of Toby's mouth. The matter seemed at an end but then followed morning after morning of Toby at breakfast, his eyes red with sleeplessness, chin slipping from his hand, mishandled eggs staining the henyard in his wake. Nights while Emmett hunched over his sentinel drafts in the kitchen and Robin Dolan lay dead to the world upstairs, Nora put her ear to Toby's door and listened to the restless rasp of his body under the covers. Predictably, Emmett traced their son's distress to what they were now calling last year's mischance. Anything that went sideways with Toby could be explained away by it. A fall from horseback last March, indistinct by all appearances from any of the dozen Toby had brushed off over the years. So very ordinary in its course that Nora hadn't even bothered to go to him when he fell. I doubt it could have been helped, the doctor had assured her later, having declared it a miracle that Toby wasn't blinded outright. They had been waiting ever since on the sight in his left eye to return and for reprieve from some of the accident's other miseries. Headaches that sent him retching, lightning that streamed through his field of vision. He had come to fear the dark and the shapes that roared out at him from the electric chasm of injured sleep. To make matters worse, he mistook Nora's tenderness for pity, which she found unfair. She could not help wanting on those frequent occasions when he bumped a wall or missed a cup handle to seize his little head and hold it in both hands. Had he been too young to question her or old enough to understand, Toby might have grit his teeth through such attentions, but he was just the right age to find them unbearable. 
Luckily, however, it was past him to question why she might be crouching streamside with him now, making a big show of hearing him out. Look, he said. See? Thank you. Taya, thank you so much for sharing that with everyone. Um, I don't know what percentage of the audience has had the, the chance to um, dive into Inland yet. Um, for those of you who haven't, I urge you to. It's one of the best books that I've read in years. Um, I found myself deeply moved while reading it um, and also just enjoying the prose in a way that I rarely do these days. I think as writers, and some of you might be writers in the audience as well, we spend so much time thinking about our own writing that sometimes when asked to read other people's writing, it feels like, you know, more kind of editorial work. But with Taya's writing, I can never think of a word that I would change, which oh I, I deeply appreciate. You let me take off my editorial hat for a while and just really get lost in your, in your words. And Thank you so much. That's an experience that's increasingly rare, and I just loved it. Thank um, you. So my first question for you will not be, what was your, thank you, that's good. <laughs> Much as I like to, to look at the beautiful cover art, I would rather look at your face. Um, I, it won't be, what was your inspiration for this book? Because I think that's too big a question. Um, instead, I like to um, talk to authors about what was the first spark of the book, by which I mean, what arrived first to you, either an image or a character or a specific setting that let you know this is rich enough for me to potentially write a novel. Um, thank you for that question and all those very, very nice things that you just said about my prose. Um, I, I think the, um, the spark of the book was this scene. Um, I, when I, I, I did the research, uh, I did some initial research for it because I was fascinated by the history and the, and the subject before realizing that I was going to write about it. Mm -hmm. um, and in the midst of it all, this flash came to the spark came to me, and it was it was uh, it was this vision of a woman and her son down by the river, looking at what he thinks are tracks. Mm -hmm. um, and so, the part that I just read is actually the oldest part of like if you were to carbon date parts of the book, that would be the oldest part. Um, that chapter remained relatively unchanged, uh, with the exception of some moving around of prose from from the beginning, mm -hmm. because it was such a strong pull this notion of being distant from somebody who thinks they see something and sort of being stuck in your own head and being uh, trapped in this violent, uh, uh, this uh, violently hot landscape. Mm -hmm. um, it just really hit me. And that was, that was it. Yeah. Um, the book is, could certainly be categorized as historical fiction, and yet it feels very um, relevant today, and it contains within it a lot of themes that we hear a lot about today as well. Um, two that immediately come to mind are uh, immigrants and immigration to the United States and the way that people who have been here for more generations treat people who have been here for fewer generations or people who are newer arrivals to the United States or to the territory that uh, became the United has become the United States, and the other is um, the control of the press. Mm -hmm. There's a very kind of there's a this is told in a there's a a, a micro way. There's a battle between two <laughs> newspapers about you know the narrative uh, surrounding a particular 
debate. Um, but of course, that also resonates with a lot of what we're hearing about today as well. Um, I don't know whether this is true, but I assume that you were you you were writing this book over the course of a, a, a big political sea change in the United States that you were writing it before that happened and after that happened. Um, is can you articulate whether that caused you to overtly change anything in the narrative, or was it subtler than that? If my assumption is true, it was. Um, your assumption is is true for the for the most part. The first draft of the book, mm -hmm. newspaper battles and all, mm -hmm. was completed sometime around. I'm going to say September of 2016, mm -hmm. um, and so certain. Uh, changes, particularly about the, the press and the way the press was being um, weaponized or purported to be weaponized, uh, had already begun to happen. Mm -hmm. um, but what I found shocking was, um, you know, you sort of, you come out of the fugue state of having written the first draft of a book, and you're like, here's this mess. Mm -hmm. um, editing it alongside the changes that then continued um, in the social fabric of our country, or at least the, the, the cultural conversations that we've been having, um, was really jarring. Mm -hmm. um, because so much of what, uh, what this book is about was rooted in historical fact. Mm -hmm. um, there's a reason why the notion of like the cattle baron versus the small town folk is such a huge, huge part of the Western genre, because it happened all the time. Mm -hmm. And our understanding of it has, was, was, was colored by uh, grips on narrative history that changed between the 19th century and now. Mm -hmm. The story used to be, look at this wonderful cattle baron uh, trying so hard to run his 100,000 head, uh, and all these little rustlers plaguing him from all sides, because typically the cattle baron's newspaper would be the one t telling that story. Sure. Um, and, uh, and then that switched over as, historian, as historical interest began to be more engaged with what... Uh, What's the, what's the real deal here? Like, why are, why are there all these small-time cattle wrestlers, and why are they such a big threat? Right. Um, so... Um, so I, I wanted to cleave, particularly in Nora's narrative, to things that were uh, more, more in, the, in the vein of realism. And it was a big surprise to see how many of those battles that were being had then have sort of resurfaced now. Mm -hmm. um, or perhaps never went away and just yeah. you know, resurfaced in conversation, if not in, in practice, if, they, sure. if they've all been around. Um, sort of on a lighter note, you write children so perfectly and beautifully, and uh, you have such empathy for them and all of their, the trials that they face in a particular day. Um, I'm wondering what you were like as a child, whether you have <laughs> particularly strong memories of childhood that you're drawing upon to con invent these child characters who really feel, I, what I love about the way you write kids is the, the dignity that you give them and you Thank don't you. trivialize their concerns. Um, uh, 
so tell me about yourself. You know, were you were you a, a scholarly child? Were you a worried child? I was such a I was such a little scholarly child. Um, I was so alone. Uh, I <laughs> I was an only child uh, until I was 15 years old, and then and then my brother was born. My brother was born in in, in America, and so we always joke that my mom raised two only kids because uh, you know <laughs> I was out of the house by the time he became a sentient being. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I think um, it's so, what strikes me about kids and, and what I remember about um, the experience of my own childhood is the, um, the really disorienting feeling of not knowing things mm -hmm. um, and feeling like there was always a conversation that was going on above your level of, of, of cognition mm -hmm. and that the world was divided basically into two layers. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm using a physical gesture because when I think about it, it feels like it feels like the Charlie Brown physical state, right? Mm -hmm. There's like you and then there's like the grown-up's head above somewhere mm -hmm. telling the truth, right? And down here is your sort of cloud of, mm -hmm. of mystery. Um, and I think that while I was writing this book, I was thinking a lot about my own childhood because it is a book about immigration mm -hmm. and, and, and not just immigration, but about um, being a wanderer mm -hmm. um, and, and feeling displaced mm -hmm. and how that feeling, I think, is, is actually for many immigrants, particularly when, when language is, is in play and when cultural norms and idioms are in play, um, it's not that different from feeling like you've, you've reverted to child to a childlike state, mm -hmm. to come to a new place, to not n know the language, to not quite understand like the fabric of the truth that's being spoken somewhere above you, mm -hmm. and to, to be trying all the time to reach for it, mm -hmm. I think is a, is a, it's a, so yeah, it's a striving sort of, yeah. childhood is a striving right. state. Which, which is, means that it's great material for, for a novelist because you always want characters who are just trying really hard to get something done and having obstacles prevent them, namely adults preventing them from <laughs> getting, getting, carrying out their missions. Um, so I want to talk to you about Research. I, I'm sure you've talked a lot about the research of this book, but it's uh, an interesting topic of conversation because it's so well done. Um, mm -hmm. So here's a, an aside. I got my MFA at Hunter College, and Taya teaches at Hunter College. She was she is younger than I am. She was not teaching there when I was <laughs> when I was getting my MFA. But um, we have this in common, and I'm bringing this up because. Hunter has given me the gift this semester of something called a Hertog Fellow, which is a gung-ho MFA student who is helping me do research for the, the next novel that I'm writing. And she's wonderful. Her name Ooh. is Ashley Albert. Oh, it's Ashley. Great. Yeah. Fantastic. She's Fantastic. really, really great, yeah. really great lady. Um, my question for you is, so this is the first time I've ever had any kind of research assistant. And it's a good exercise for me because I have to outsource and I have to release control in some way. The question for you is, are you able to have assistance with your research? Like, or do you need to be the one Did you have any assistance with the research? I did. I had a Hertog uh, fellow too. Um, uh, but I, I, um, I think that my, I was in a phase, I think you have to be in the right phase mm -hmm. of research in order to know what to point mm -hmm. your assistant toward. Mm -hmm. um, I think so much of research for me is about this sort of um, aimless wandering and stumbling onto incredible facts that then turn out to be deeply, deeply meaningful or to spark something. Um, and when you're in that place, 
you can't really outsource it, you know, you're, you're, cause you're searching around, mm-hmm. um, and you have to be there to like catch the little things that, that only you can see that are relevant to you. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause you've got the special goggles on. <laughs> um, but it's, um, there is something that once you, it's sort of the difference between like a first and second draft. I think for second draft research, mm-hmm. you can totally, or I, I could, I could totally have released that kind of control and been like, here are the things I'm writing about. You know, give me some research on range wars, some research on the topography of, of you know, central Arizona in the 1890s, mm-hmm. and some drought data. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. uh, but until then, it was like, oh gosh, like I wonder what is this book about. So right. it's like a first draft, second draft problem. Right, right, right. That's true. <laughs> Um, one of the things that I noticed that, that I want to tell myself was through research, but might just be because you have an encyclopedic brain, which I'm fully prepared to believe you use, um, now you have incorporated so many specific nouns, um, like hominy seeds, cane rattler. I just started keeping a list of things that vaguely rang a bell, but I was like, does she have those things just at her disposal as she's writing? Or does she have to stop and think, I need the name of a snake that would be specific to the region. Can you tell me a little bit about like how often you, in your writing process, um, must stop and go find something? Or are you a writer who tends to just put an asterisk when you need something and tell yourself, I must return to this? I've become more of an asterisk putter mm-hmm. um, over the years, largely because I, I now do like these huge, messy first drafts mm-hmm. that often make no sense whatsoever. And if somebody were to look at them, mm-hmm. they'd be like, okay. Right. Um, uh, but uh, I think I, I did so much reading for, I did so much research yeah. in the lead up to this about daily life and about flora and fauna in particular, because I'm somebody who really, really loves animals. Um, and, uh, and even stuff that you absorb um, in other areas of your life is research. You know, like uh, songs use cane rattlers all the time. And I think I put cane, just to use it as an example, I think I used the words cane rattler in the book like five times before I was like, better check if this is a real thing <laughs> and like where it lives, right. <laughs> right. you know? Um, so, so yeah, it's a, it's a combination of, of those things. But I, I also had a, there was a book that I used specifically for research here, and it was called The, uh, the Dictionary of Americanisms. Um, and there were several editions of it that came out throughout the 1800s, but it was like a large glossary, like a large compendium of um, words and idioms divided by region uh, that were used in various parts of that, that were... Uh, um, uh, oh my God! I'm, I can't. I kept speaking of words. I can't find the word um, that were uh, rooted in, in very, very particular places and times, uh, and that only certain populations used. So, like, is is it the South in in 1857? Then you're using the phrase uh, "acknowledge the corn," and then it would it would tell you where the phrase "acknowledge the corn" came from. Um, and it's this like long, elaborate story. And I found it really, really, really fascinating and extremely useful. That's a wonderful gift to find. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That makes me feel more calm as a person. That you that <laughs> um, but it's a, that's a t- also a testament to your ability to find the right research, you know, <laughs> that's, which is a skill unto itself. Um, so uh, tell me about any in-person experiences with camels you've had. Have you had ah. any? <laughs> Um, 
I, well, um, camels are a big part of inland in case you missed that. Yeah. They're, they're a big, big part. Um, so I, I, um, I grew, <laughs> I grew up with camels. No, um, uh, the, the, the portion of my childhood that was spent in Egypt, um, they're just around. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think that, um, one of the interesting things that, that, that I experienced as a child and then was sort of able to work my way back toward was, is this notion of the things that seem pedestrian to one person don't seem pedestrian to another, obviously, you know, when, when you're a kid growing up in Egypt, the first couple of times you see camels, you're like, wow. And then by the end of the first year, you're like, <laughs> uh, you know, out of the road. Um, and, uh, and, and it struck me how the, 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 the all the accounts of the camels coming over here are obviously from the point of view of people who wrote about this unbelievable experience of sitting on their porch in Indianola, Texas, and watching a caravan of camels come off the boat mm -hmm. onto the dock, mm -hmm. um, and and how stunning that was, and how you know kids would. Uh, there's this uh, book called. Texas camel tales and they're all sort of first person accounts of kids going up to, to climb the prickly pear fences and look in on the camels. Mm -hmm. um, and the difference between that experience and the experience of the young men who brought them over for whom they were, you know, regular charges, um, like horses would be. Um, and then how that might bind a person's identity to what they had brought with them. You know, the, the camels must have become huge markers of selfhood to them yeah. because they were the ones in charge of this thing that fascinated everybody else. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. Great. But I've also ridden a camel. It's very bumpy. Yeah. Seems like it. <laughs> yeah. It's, more, it's in more ways than one. Yeah. Bumps on top and yeah. bumps along the way. Exactly. Um, so I'm very interested in the fact that um, you, you talk about how you had a couple of um, stops and starts in between The Tiger's Wife and Inland. How do you know uh, when to really stop, when, when to really say this is not working and it's going in the drawer? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, the experience of it is, um, was, was, I mean, it was, it was really, really distressing. I'm sure that you've gone through this yourself uh, a, a, a couple of times and mm -hmm. been like, oh, God. <laughs> and for me... Um, the feeling of it is I just don't know. There's, there's, some, there's a kernel of something in, in a project that is deeply meaningful to you where you, you're working on the project, but you can sort of feel it working on you too. Mm -hmm. you know? It's challenging your relationship to language and it's challenging the questions that you're asking yourself and the exploration that you're doing. And you get a feeling that like, when I'm done with this, I'm going to be somebody else. Like as a writer or as a person or as, you know, or my, my opinion about something will have changed. Like mm -hmm. it will have altered the fabric of how I understand myself. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, it's three in the morning, so you don't think of it articulately at all. You're just like, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, um, but that the absence of that feeling is really, really profound and really, really terrifying. Yeah. And I can I I've, can very much feel it when I'm working on certain short stories. But with short stories, it's like, well, this is the, now this has now become a word puzzle, mm -hmm. and we're going to work out how this gets to the end, and then that'll be fine. Mm -hmm. But with a novel, the feeling is like it's empty and it's empty and it's empty and it's empty, and the words are landing on the page, but I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure what it is I'm trying to say. Yeah. And if I get to the end of a first draft, by the end of the first draft, I should really know what the book is about. And if I don't, then I'm in big, big trouble. Right. Right. Um, and so I got to the end twice and just had no idea mm -hmm. how to take it to the next draft, like how it was supposed to be built up in light of blank. Oh my God, <laughs> sorry. Um, 
I have now twice punched myself in the face with this microphone. That's okay. <laughs> it's um, a tough question. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm very glad that you persevered uh, and produced Inland. Um, so, uh, Alex, maybe one or two more questions from me? Uh, okay. And then we'll open it up to you. So I hope you're all thinking of your, your best questions for Taya. Um, so the, hmm, which will I do first? Um, are you an eavesdropper? You have such a good ear for dialogue. Do you sit in public places listening to other people's conversations like I do? I do. <laughs> do, do you that, do it too? Do, yeah. yeah. Um, do you record though? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> do you have them on hand? Are you, I, I, I sometimes you write, write them. I sometimes yeah. write them down. Yeah. Um, because because it's such a weird. Um, I'm I'm really fascinated by how people end up, um, how conversations end up going, jumping from one place mm -hmm. to the next. Like because mm -hmm. sometimes things will travel along mm -hmm. uh, what seems to be a pretty reasonable channel, mm -hmm. right? And then suddenly the conversation will like jump from one rooftop to the next right. and like take off running. Mm -hmm. And you're like, where, how do we get to this? Mm -hmm. um, so I'm always very curious in my own conversations how we got there. And my husband will tell you like I backtrack all the time. I'm like, how do we get here? <laughs> um, but in, in other people's conversations, I find those jumping points yeah. really, really interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think that it, I think it all it speaks to the fact that people often talk past each other, like they don't actually mm -hmm. engage in direct mm -hmm. conversation. It's like I'm going to take a third of what you said right. and build on it in this direction, and then you'll try to build it back, right. and then somehow we'll right. find our way to some random other place. Yeah. Do you find that to be the uh, case? Or? I do. Yeah, mm -hmm. I do. Um, all right, one more question from me, um, uh, and I hope this will sort of tie something together, but. The, um, I love the character of Nora was very moving to me because she's so flawed, like everybody is, um, uh, and so. But her flaws are so human and understandable. Um, she has secrets. She has a secret that I won't tell. Um, did you know that secret when you began the book, or did it come out as you wrote it? It came out as I wrote it. Yeah. And yeah. did you find that you had to go back and redo her in some way? Totally. Given, yeah. Totally. And her yeah. relationships to, because the way she preserves mm -hmm. that secret has a lot to do with, with her relationships with people mm -hmm. in town. Mm -hmm. And the way she sees people in town is often altered by how she has positioned them over time in her memory in relationship yeah. to that secret. Yeah. And so everything had to, once, once I got it, yeah. everything had to, to, to change yeah. in accordance with it and yeah. be like, it made me cry really hard. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, it was just beautiful. Thank it you really so was. much. Um, I'm sorry I made you cry. No, it was a good cry, a cathartic cry. Thank you. Um, all right, Alex, please. First of all, can we give another round of applause for Taya and her? Thank you, Liz. Check one, two, check one, two. All right, we're going to have an audience Q&A portion of the afternoon. So if you have a question, please raise your hand, and I will come around with the mic. We'll start right here and then go over there. Okay. I like your answers to her good questions, your good answers. So I want to follow up on one of her questions. Please. She asked you, how do you know when to put a draft away? Mm -hmm. And I'm asking for your good answer to how do you know or what are the triggers that get you to pull a draft back out and start working on it again. Could you elaborate on that, please? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the one of the books that I, I put away, I have pulled back since, and I think um, 
And actually, a, a short story that took me four years to write was something that I put away often and then, and then picked back up. So for me, it's, it's this notion of it just sort of continues to sit in the back of your brain. There are definitely things that I've written that I haven't thought about since. And, uh, and there's a reason for that, right? Like they didn't connect with uh, some part of your um, emotional quest or psychological uh, interrogation that, that you were experiencing at the time. Um, I think you have, the, have to have the right tools to open the right locks at the right time. And sometimes you have the right tools and you don't have the right lock, and sometimes you have the lock but you don't have the tools, and but you're, it, it keeps nagging at you, right? Like what's behind the door? Um, and so you, for, for me, I, I've just sort of kept returning to those drafts and seeing if something new had, had arisen that in my understanding of what it was I was trying to do or where the story should go. And sometimes you're lucky and it happens. Uh, and, and sometimes it just, it just never does. Um, so yeah, it's just about sort of s sticking around and having the patience and then finally connecting the lock and the, and the key. Thank Quick. you. Question in the back. Hi. Hi. Uh, I have a question. I think you may have just touched on it with your answer to the previous one, but uh, in both of your wonderful books, there's more than one narrative line, and they often move back. They move back and forth between narrators and, and time, um, and stories and real things or fictional things. Um, and maybe I was wondering if you could reflect a little bit on why, um, and maybe your answer just. Yes. Yeah. No. I think it's. I think it's because um, I've been thinking about this a lot uh, because I started the next one and I was like, well, there are these two storylines. I was like, oh my god. Um, so, um, so I, I think that um, it has something to do with like the traditional oral storytelling form. Um, I believe really, really firmly in my own work, and this isn't true of everybody's work, but I believe really, really firmly that I am entering into a pact with a reader whenever I start to tell a story. And this is rooted in like old, old narrative traditions, right? Like, like if, I'm, if you and I are sitting in a bar and I'm going to tell you a story, um, I usually start with something like, oh my God, you're not gonna believe this. And what happens is I have, by saying that, I have entered into a pact with you that what I'm telling you is worth sticking around to hear. And as the story progresses, my level of knowledge, we start here. I have all the knowledge, you have none. And by the time we get to the middle, the story's over, right? And so you will have as much knowledge as, I, as, as is necessary for you and I to be able to appreciate the story on the same level. And that's how storytelling, for me, has always worked, on the page, or in the bar, or wherever. Um, I think that the two narrative line is really, really instrumental to that, because um, it's not just that this story matters, that the story that's being told matters to the author or the reader, it often also matters to somebody in the story itself. Somebody is receiving the narrative and making sense of it. And so I think that the two narrative thread and the fact that, that it's, it's, it's often two, time, two disparate timelines coming together to make meaning and um, somebody's reality and somebody's surreality are actually all part of the same fabric. That's how it comes together. Um, so yeah, it's just, I think, that's, I think that's why. That's a really great question. Thank you so much. I hope it was a coherent answer in any way. I was like, listen, like this and this. <laughs> Sorry. Question to the left. Yes. 
I'm always curious how people start writing. Sure. Even more so when someone's storytelling develops into such beautiful prose. So when did you start writing? What were you writing then? And when did you find your voice? And how did you know you had it? Oh, God. Um, well, she um, was 12 years old when she found her voice. I think that's also when your first book was published. Is that right? I think it was about then. <laughs> Thank you. Um, no, I... I um, I was I was eight when I decided that I wanted to be a writer, and I think it had a lot to do with the fact that like I was an only kid moving around a lot, and I told myself a bunch of stories, you know, um, and uh, I wrote a short story. My the first thing I ever wrote in English was a short story about a goat who has a bad day, um, and I feel like my writing really hasn't thematically hasn't moved m m much beyond that. <laughs> um, but but yeah no I think I think one's voice is always changing. Um, I think that like as a, as a writer you evolve toward uh, you have certain habits and then you have certain things that you're good at and often things that you're good at become habits and then your your battle in your writing is always like is this the optimal way to tell this story or am I just like crutching along on my bad habits or my 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 habits that are comfortable. Um, so I think that the way the voice grows with the writer has a lot to do with like what the story wants from you and and how it is you're trying to to grow your own language so I, I i think i hope that certain parts of my voice will always stay the same but i hope that parts of it will change too as it as it goes on so i'm not sure that i've ever that i've hit it yet thank you thank you so much question in the front row yeah i know you've talked about the drafts that you in the drawers, but I'm just wondering if you've ever returned to a character or pulled a character from a different draft and story and put them in a different one. Like, are the characters so tied to the world you create and the fabric of the story, or have you moved them? Um, I very rarely, but um, I did move. In this book, there's a character called Marion Crace, and he is a he's a cattle baron. Um, and uh, or he has become a cattle baron. I moved him from a book that never got anywhere like a thousand years ago, in which he wasn't a cattle baron, but he was this sort of similar character. Um, and it, it happened very strangely because people in town, like I was beginning to develop the town in Inland, and suddenly people started referring to this character from another book. And I think that what had happened was I just plugged in the name that I remembered from before. But then he started to grow into the personality type that, was, that had been present in that, that other book. So I think sometimes people just sort of, they just climb into the, into the back of your brain and sit there um, until you let them out. <laughs> There's a lot of body horror in these analogies. It's just like <laughs> question in the second row. Hi. Hi. I have a question. I'm curious about your process. When you when you sit down to write, do you have a certain time that you will write? Mm. Do you feel like you have to turn it off? And if you turn it off, do you feel like you're going to miss something? And do you embody any of your characters or do you observe them? Oh gosh. Um I do a lot of uh 
I, 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 I right now I, I didn't used to keep bankers hours, but now I keep like, like I get up in the morning, I do my writing, I have my lunch, I have my second lunch and then I finish my, <laughs> my, my work. Um, but, um, I have a really, really difficult time writing. I don't know if you feel this way too. If I have something that I know has to happen that evening and I'm in the generative phase, I can't write. Um, like if, if we're meant to go out somewhere or there's like a meeting that has to happen, I can't produce new work that day. I can edit, but I can't do new work. I don't know why. Maybe because it is that thing where, where I just have to wait for it to happen. And if I feel like there's going to be a cutoff, then there's no point, um, which is a cop out in other ways, but that's fine. Um, I also, um, I, I, I read the dialogue aloud a lot. Um, I read the, the, I read aloud all the time. Um, and I'll get up and like act it out too, <laughs> <laughs> which is, must be fun for the neighbors. Does Dan ever help you? Dan does not help with the, Dan will listen sometimes very, very kindly, but, uh, but he won't, uh, he, he won't, he won't do the, the read through. No, nope, he doesn't <laughs> put on a British accent for Mary and Craig. Okay. We have time for maybe one or two, two more questions. Yes. In the back. Hi. Um, Hi. Both um, The Tiger's Wife and this book have elements of the supernatural or other worlds. And I'm not usually drawn to that, but you make it so seamlessly real. It, you, you know, I, I'm believing it. Um, where does that come from, the, the, the play with the supernatural? Ah, um, I think I, I, I've, I've asked myself that. Thank you for saying that very, very, it, it's, it's really, really kind. Um, I'm glad that, 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 that it's drawn you in, even though it's not something that, that, that you're normally drawn to. Um, I think a lot of my characters, a lot of my books end up about being about characters who are at the crossroads of belief, of some sort of belief. Um, and the action of the story ends up defining whether they're going to proceed from there with acknowledgement of the supernatural or without it. Um, and I'm not sure that the answer ever comes in the, in the book, but um, I find myself at that crossroads a lot. Um, I grew up in a culture in particularly a, a narrative culture where uh, ghosts and the supernatural, you just, they were just there. Um, and I think that in, in, in American mythos, they often appear as anomalies, whereas in Balkan narrative traditions, they often appear as a matter of fact. And I think that that's how it, that's how it ends up that way. You know, like in, in, in my work, I think it's this, this clash of sensibilities um, that I'm still trying to work out all the time. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Can we give a huge round of applause for Taya and Liz? Thank you, Taya. You have been listening to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore Author Reading Podcast. Please make sure to hit the subscribe button to keep up to date on all our newest author talks. After every event, there are limited quantities of signed copies of the featured books. Don't forget to grab your copy today. If you would like more information on Midtown Scholar Bookstore, please visit midtownscholar.com. The Midtown Scholar Bookstore author reading podcast is a free podcast and does not own the rights to any of the readings.